This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. It was little more than a decade ago that Clayton Christensen and Michael Horn forecast that half of all high school students would be taking their courses online. For years, the peddlers of conventional wisdom laughed at this prediction, but suddenly the estimate seems too low. As the number of COVID cases continues to rise, even more school districts are shuttering their doors and asking their students to attend classes over the internet. Last May, when the pandemic was still in its early stages, Education Next asked a representative sample of American adults whether they thought high school students should be allowed to pursue a majority of their courses online. The response was overwhelmingly favorable, up 20 percentage points over the level a decade ago, and just about three quarters of all parents. At the same time, parents reported that their children were learning less this spring than had been the case in the past before they had to receive instruction online. Many parents this fall seem to be desperate to get their children back in school when New York City shut down its schools this, just this past week. For the second time, parents were alarmed and upset and complained bitterly to the city's politicians. So is online learning the wave of the future or has the COVID experience convinced parents that the only way to learn is in a brick and mortar school? To discuss these issues, I'm delighted to have with me today an expert on this topic, Susan Patrick, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Aurora Institute and co-founder of Competency Works, which is calling for the use of technology to bring a more personalized learning experience to all children. Thank you, Susan, for joining me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. Well, Susan, just how many young people out there are learning online today? How prevalent is online learning day-to-day in, -day in the current crisis? The data is showing us in the United States that in the spring of 2020, literally over 50 million students, that's almost all of the students across K through 12 education and public institutions and private institutions were learning online due to the pandemic. Um, when you think about online learning, it, it really means that some portion of instruction and learning is taking place over the internet. And over the years, there have been students that have been taking courses online and blended learning environments in classrooms where students were using digital learning tools, but this is unprecedented for 2020. So how are parents reacting to all of this? What's your sense of it? Uh, we did this poll last spring, but maybe things have improved uh, this fall uh, as uh, school districts have been able to uh, adapt to the new world. They've had the summer to, to make adjustments. What's, what's happening on the ground? Well, in this fall, we see that about half of students have chosen some form of online learning, whether it's hybrid learning or fully online. A surprising number of students, and, and this really happened at the end of summer, uh, decided to choose fully online learning environments so that they weren't shifting back and forth between face-to-face, -face, hybrid, and, and school closures. And that's really interesting. I think um, prior to 2020, we were already seeing across the country uh, approaching an acceptance of online learning in the mainstream. We use the internet to communicate uh, in our day-to-day -day lives. We use uh, technology to get our work done, to access entertainment, to do um, many 
of the things that we need to do every day. So COVID has only accelerated this acceptance of online learning. And um, the interesting thing is most schools and districts had over the summer to really beef up their uh, educator readiness for online learning. And in the spring, for those schools and districts that had not already been teaching online, it was a big, it was a big shift. And uh, there was a lot of room to grow. When we think about high quality online learning, most programs spend at least a year training their teachers to teach online before getting started. And that certainly wasn't the case in early 2020. Well, so how is it in the fall? Do you, what kinds of adaptations occurred over the summer? Do you have any examples or uh, even better, some idea of the extent to which adaptation was occurring over the summer? Uh, I think we saw uh, innovation and creativity unleashed over the summer. For example, in Dallas, which is a large school district, they completely revamped their professional learning and professional development for teachers they had to offer the professional development online. So teachers were learning online and they looked at personalizing that instruction, breaking down the learning goals and the learning objectives to very discrete uh, needs for teachers and moving to online teaching environments and essentially created far more personalized uh, digital learning experiences for the adults across the system and by all accounts, it was a state of continuous improvement until getting ready for fall. And, and that's representative of many, um, many of the initiatives that have been happening across the country and how schools are making the shift to accept online learning for the mainstream. So what are the tools that are proving the most important and the most effective? Is, is, is Zoom the tool of choice or is there some other product out there that's that districts are um, uh, preferring? Yeah, it's really important. When we look at strategies for online learning, there are really four big areas that are important. That technical preparedness and the technology tools, the first that you bring up. And for uh, districts and schools and educators that were unfamiliar where, where online learning was new, they essentially made a shift to try to do their traditional teaching style over Zoom, where they're just delivering content. If you look at seasoned online learning programs, they usually start with organizing a learning management system so that they can uh, set out learning goals, whether they're daily, weekly, over a semester, and use those tools uh, with digital content that's already ready before they start the program and modernized instruction. We think about contemporary pedagogy, how, um, how teachers monitor learning in high quality online learning environments is very different than face-to-face -face learning. And so most teachers were shifting their traditional models just to Zoom. I think over the summer, there was a real deep look at what online learning platforms, learning management systems, the districts had available, but that teachers had not yet received the training to use those tools. And that's been helpful too. Well, one of the things I have done in my own courses is to have uh, breakout rooms for the students uh, to, to work with one another in groups of about four or five. Um, 
and I find that very helpful in the middle of a lecture because uh, people can uh, listen to a lecture for about 15 minutes, maybe 20, and that's about maxing out. And I'm talking about adults here. I'm not talking about children. So um, is this one of the things that is happening more generally? Yeah, it's interesting to look at, at the research shows that uh, the longest that adults and young people want to hear one person talk is about 10 or 11 minutes. And then- uh -oh, I'm over time, <laughs> I'm over time. But I'm sure it's so engaging that that 15 minutes works well. Well, we try to interrupt it with, a, with a, a few students asking questions. So I'll pick up a question as I go along. So just so they don't have to stare at this same face. Uh, for too long, yeah. Yeah, the communication is key and how to make an engagement. And some of that is some whole group instruction like, like you're talking about for, for 10 or 15 minutes, but uh, teachers really need skills and how they manage small group instructions, how they use one-on-one -on -one time. And so there are um, strategies for what are the key questions um, how do you think about problem solving? What kind of knowledge transfer needs to happen in these environments? And these are the heart of, of online learning programs that have been in existence for 20 years or more, have been studying these pedagogical approaches. And, and that was one thing back in 2010 um, when blended learning became a, a, a bigger part of the conversation on innovating education, it was like, how do we take these strategies and lessons learned from the leading innovators in online learning where they're using the tools to really change the structure of the classroom, increasing engagement, not just with the faculty member or instructor, but in increasing the engagement peer to peer and, and producing evidence in different ways that can be transmitted digitally whether it's papers or projects or, or videos. So one of the things that I have uh, done, I started this about eight years ago, I think, uh, is to put my uh, lectures up online. And when I first began, I was one of these straight up lectures for an hour. It was, you know, it was a positively, you know, the rules were broken completely. But I, I did get complaints back. Uh, so I adapted and finally we came up with an idea that I would have students uh, ask me a question or a student ask me a question. It was a little bit staged uh, and then I would respond to it and then we would have PowerPoints and cartoons and graphs and so forth to illustrate. So, but this was all done asynchronously and we, we batched them together in about 15 minutes at a go. So we would have a conversation for 15 minutes. We do three of them for every class period. So the student could, uh, you know, listen to 15 minutes and then, you know, take a shower and then come back and listen to 15 more minutes or whatever they, however they wanted to do it. Or they could do it while exercising, which is not a bad idea. And so uh, in any case, uh, this has been very popular. The final version, the early versions were not so popular. The, the current version is really quite popular. So now is this asynchronous approach actually to be preferred over the Zoom-like conversation approach? Yeah, I think what you're talking about is the heart of effective design for online learning. And I think for teachers that are just starting to teach online for the first time, taking an opportunity to think how they could shift their entire course into an asynchronous environment 
is a really good exercise to go through to think about how different the design could be. There's, there's some deconstruction needed, and then there's a bridge to how would you use synchronous time most effectively? Because there are um, conversations, questions, proddings that come up in those synchronous moments, but you want to have your synchronous time be of the maximum value for participation, for engagement, for um, really pushing on, on ideas where the asynchronous time um, can help. And, and these notions of in K through 12 education, the shift to online teaching where there are still teachers just using Zoom to do exactly what they did in a traditional classroom and students are being asked to sit for six straight hours in front of a Zoom. This is not high quality digital learning. Everything we know about high quality online learning, this is not reflective of. So really looking at what is the balance of asynchronous teaching and synchronous teaching and taking it as a, a opportunity to continuously improve a class until you hit a sweet spot is really important. And, and it's important for us to give a little bit of grace to those new teachers getting started because we've all been there when something has been new um, and, and that's important too. Well, when I did, I mean, I uh, learned, I did these asynchronous lectures when the flip the classroom idea came along and I said, okay, I'm gonna flip this classroom I'm gonna give the content before class. Everybody's got to prepare themselves for class. They have to take a test. I, I don't believe people will watch those videos before class unless you give them a quiz. First five minutes of the class, to, just to check, to see. Then it's amazing how that improves the probability that they will in fact do their assignment before they come to class, which is really critically important because otherwise, if you try to build on it, that material and have a conversation about it and get people engaged in talking about it, they've got to have encountered it. So that's been my strategy with how to use asynchronous with synchronous, but what am I missing? There must be more to do than what I've figured out so far. Well, I think it's critical to think about how instructors are forming feedback loops. And, and what you're describing is when you start that synchronous time, making sure that the learning that happened asynchronously, that there's a chance to check on that understanding and feedback loop. There are also opportunities, I, I think underutilized is peer-to-peer -peer learning in environments. So you can take the small group conversations and break a class of 25 people into groups of three and, and have some facilitated questions. You don't necessarily have to be in all of those groups and giving students a chance to hold each other accountable is an effective way also of ensuring that there are those uh, engagement and feedback loops too on, on the instruction. Yeah, well, that, thanks for bringing that up because that's exactly what I've been doing this year now that I'm teaching online. Because one of the things that really, you know, I've got 75 minutes with the students. So what I will typically do is um, do at least part of the day will be spent with them for five, 10 minutes or so in little breakout groups, four or five in a group to, to discuss with one another. And that's a, that's a very popular innovation. But now how do I do that when I go back to the regular classroom? Isn't that place just gonna be a noisy mess? I've got 60, 70, 80 students in some of my classes. So, 
how do you have these little breakout discussion groups with, 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 uh, in a big classroom? Well, do you need to have it in a big classroom? Where do you need to have the active construction of knowledge? And can you take your traditional in-person classroom and make that a hybrid environment? And maybe students like the chance to go into Zoom in smaller doses uh, individually. They really think about what that balance is on what you need in the whole classroom, what you need in the small groups, and whether it is more useful to have technology at, at a different time to have those small group instruction. It is gonna be loud if you have 80 people in a classroom that's not designed for that kind of noise level. Yes, well, listen, I've been, I've been uh, taking advantage of your expertise here, but let me ask you about this, the digital divide, the fact that once we go to online learning as we have this fall, last spring, isn't it the case that the families with more resources, either they can hire a tutor or the mother or dad is effective teacher, uh, aren't they getting a lot of advantages that those who don't have those family resources uh, can't equal? Absolutely. I, one thing the pandemic has done has exposed the vast inequities for families that have resources and families that don't. And the digital divide is really clear um, during this pandemic we don't have universal access to broadband uh, and technology across the US. And when you look at the data, just on the digital disparity for access to broadband internet connectivity, 30% of black students in the US still lack adequate connectivity at home, 30%. That is a lot of students. In comparison, 21% of white households lack high-speed internet. So it's across the board. There are just massive inequities based largely on annual household income. So if you look at students that are in households that earn under $50,000 annually and students living in rural communities as well, the the availability or the access to high-speed internet is very, very small. Well, no, actually, didn't you say 70% have access? 30% do not have access, but 70% do have access, right? To the internet, yes. To the internet. Yeah. But is that is that a, at a high speed enough so that they can handle a Zoom call? It depends how many people are in the household using it at one time and what kind of connectivity they have. So if you're on a Fios fiber wire, you can split that up and not lose speed. But if you're on anything else, like a cable connection, which many rural areas are on those uh, cable networks, it, it gets divided, not just in your household, but in your neighborhood. <laughs> So when you feel it slow down at three because you've got uh, young young people uh, gaming online, you, you might have experienced that before. Well, the, it, the federal government has a program of, of, of uh, getting connectivity throughout the country. And it's an ongoing program. I've, you probably, I'm sure you know much more about it. Why isn't that sort of getting us to where we got, want to go fairly quickly? Yeah, it's interesting. This program is at the Federal Communications Commission and the funding for the Universal Service Program at the FCC, which funds E-Rate, which provides funding for schools and for libraries. And it's actually a discount 
on their telecom bills. It's kind of like a voucher for their telecom bills. It's not like direct funding on it. However, the FCC has, um, and Congress has capped that funding so that there is extreme need beyond what the funding levels are. Now, telecom companies collect that money on your phone bill, on everyone's cell phone bill, and they're allowed to connect a portion of that money above what they send over to the FCC. The E-rate program in the Universal Service Fund is flush with cash. So we really feel like we need to push the FCC to examine how much funding is needed to close this digital divide, how to make E-rate funding available for high-speed broadband where it's needed most, and also to make sure that students can get access to the internet and connectivity at home. It's sort of like the Rural Electrification Administration, the REA, back when I was a young boy. You know, we didn't have electricity in our rural areas, but it came fairly fast once the government decided that this was a good idea. And I'm surprised you don't have a lot of support for this from um, members of Congress from rural areas. Yeah, well, hopefully there will be some shifts in the Commerce Committee on Congress that oversees this and there will be renewed interest after 2020 when people have seen firsthand how important it is to increase our access to broadband uh, internet. And the FCC, which uh, is run by a group of commissioners, will uh, have a renewed commitment to ensuring uh, better access to broadband for Americans. Yeah, well, they're not educators, so, so maybe that's that's the problem here. But one of the, but I think this is only sort of one problem, just this connectivity. This one is probably the more easily solved. The bigger problem is if you're going to be using, if the home is going to become the primary place for instruction, aren't, isn't there so much variation in our families that you're not going to be able to close that digital divide just because of the dispersion of cultural resources among families? Yeah, absolutely. And most online learning programs, they not only look at the readiness for educators for online learning, but they actually look at caregivers, guardians and the parents at home when students start uh, doing online learning. And so really more attention needs to be given to this. Um, programs like in Clark County that have had online learning programs for years. Where is Clark uh, County? It's Nevada in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, they have an orientation for, for parents, and you can do this online also, uh, an orientation to help build skills for parents and guardians as students begin to work online. And there certainly are, um, you know, the tools, the platforms, ensuring that students, that parents, that educators are all able to use it at appropriate levels. Um, it's new and there's a learning curve but it's certainly important. The other thing that high quality online learning programs have done for years is offer supports for teachers in online teaching mentoring and online teaching coaching, much as we think of um, mentoring and support for teachers in traditional environments too. And it's easier than ever to have co-teaching environments in online courses. So really rethinking 
how we um, design and structure our courses, you may be able to have larger numbers with multiple teachers and more of the smaller breakout groups or teachers aides. So really rethinking how we use human capital, teachers and others uh, to support student learning at a distance is, is very important right now. So can you have the kind of personalized learning using all these technological resources without offering choice to parents of how they want to educate their child? Isn't the school choice movement inseparable from this kind of personalized learning, uh, technologically driven world? I think they're absolutely related, but I would reframe it as in choice down to the unit lesson or, or um, not just like the whole school, but this opens up opportunities for students to think about, I want to um, spend a semester where I am um, engaged in, in some kind of work or activity and I wanna do some learning online but I may be able to go to my face-to-face -face school for part of the time. And there's some examples of this in, in Minnesota, which was uh, the first state to take on uh, school choice back in, um, you know, decades ago. They allowed- 1991 was the first charter school in Minnesota. So they have allow now for students, even in face-to-face -face environments, and they have for years, to um, go to their school of choice. Um, so you could enroll in an early college school that focuses on, on the arts and you could still take some online courses or do dual enrollment online and earn college credit. That kind of model where you're not only thinking about school choice or course choice, there are more and more course choice programs in Louisiana and Rhode Island around the country but in New Hampshire, it's really interesting. The New Hampshire Virtual Learning Academy Charter School, which was born out of the Exeter School District, serves statewide. And if a student's in algebra and they struggle with a particular concept, they can actually enroll in units in the New Hampshire Virtual Learning Academy Charter School and build up the competency so that they're in their school, uh, their, their local community school, and they still have access. So I think we really need to challenge what's possible in, in terms of student choice for instructional models and um, units, and even thinking about how there are um, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math clubs. Like this is where I get really interested in competency-based learning or mastery-based learning because the delivery model should just open up opportunities for how we um, learn and then bring that learning back and get credit for it on our record towards graduation. But the way we do credit, uh, credit allocation and the way we hand out money from the state to local school districts militates against any such variety and complexity in the learning design. Yeah, and our metrics do too, I totally agree. So it's really time. There are more than 30 states right now looking at school finance formulas. I think we need to take a step back and really ask questions on what it will take to modernize our K through 12 education systems. And that means looking at our funding models, what a meaningful credential is and how we award credit, not based on time, but based on mastery. 
And what if we just asked very different questions about metrics? And, I, and I'll give you an example. When parents are worried about how much learning is happening during COVID, whether it was less than before or how much learning, if there's less learning, we would actually have a much better handle on that if we understood learning progress per unit of time. If you think about online learning programs that have been in existence for over a decade, you actually can see how a student has submitted evidence of that work and how they move on along learning progressions. So we could do a calculation for the amount of progress over time. In competency-based learning in schools and districts, they can also see this kind of reporting of student progress over time. I think it's a really interesting chance for us to rethink some fundamental structural issues. But is it ever possible that you would get a school district to agree to receive money based on how much kids learned? That would be a transformation of everything that exists in our educational system. Now we pay school districts based on the number of students enrolled, not on the basis of how much young people learn. Can you ever imagine a change in that formula? Well, there are examples of it in the field of online learning with Florida Virtual School and the state of Utah um, in their digital learning work has also taken on this notion of what does funding, some funding incentive for successful completion of learning. Well, it's interesting. What would a federal or state grant look like to help spur innovative ideas, break the mold and try new ways? I think you would have to pilot and try this, but back to Clayton Christian's disruptive innovation theory, how do we create some space for these disruptive innovations to take hold? And I think it's very true in policy as well. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, Susan. Uh, I've enjoyed our conversation and I've enjoyed getting all this good advice on how I can improve my course. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. I have been speaking with Susan Patrick, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Aurora Institute and co-founder of Competency Works. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.